Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. All right, hit me with it. Well, hello. Uh, (laughs) I just sit down, mic up, hit me with it. Hit me with it. Let's just cut to the chase. What do you got for me today? Um, I got a story for you. Uh, I'm doing the story of Kitty Genovese. Okay. My, that's, I believe my favorite pasta is pronounced like that. Genovese, Genovese. We've talked about this already. Do you remember in the, um, in the, in my other story, what was it called? Uh, Genovese. No, like the, I did a, I did an, ep- a, a story. What was that called? Uh, the Amityville Horror. I did mm-hmm. the Amityville Horror and they were connected to someone had the name Genovese and I was saying Genovese and you were like, oh, excuse me. It's I Genovese. Don't it's- <laughs> yeah. And so we Googled it and like the Italian guy on YouTube said Genovese. Yes. But I want to just clarify to you, this family pronounces it Genovese. It's also very embarrassing that I cannot hear that word without being like, mm, my favorite pasta. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But- because you always made fun of me about that, and it would keep no, a big thing. Thank I just you. want to clarify: I did verify that they pronounce it Genevieve, so that's Smart. what I'm going to pronounce. Smart it on like. your end. Yeah. Did you ever watch that show, that Lena Dunham show, Girls on HBO? No, never, never. So I did, and I loved it. But they, in one of the episodes, they do they put on a play. It's like a big interactive play mm-hmm. about an infamous murder that happened in New York City in uh, like the 1960s. So then I looked into it because I was like, oh, I wonder if that's a real story. And it was. And it was a very compelling story. And so I ended up doing it for today. I'm excited. Yeah. So my main source of information came from a very well done documentary called The Witness, which was directed by James Solomon. It follows Kitty's brother as he investigates the story of his sister's death. And I really suggest watching it because it was so good. I watched it twice. I watched it once just to as reference. And then I watched it again just because it was so good. Out of enjoyment. So at 2.30 a.m. on March 13th, 1964, a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese left the bar that she worked at. She got into her red Fiat and drove to her apartment in the Kew Gardens area of Queens, New York. At about 3.20 a.m., She parked in the parking lot of the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station, got out, and started to walk the 100 feet to her door. She lived in a really small apartment complex that actually just sits above a strip of businesses, like a bookstore and a coffee shop and a little pharmacy, like that kind of thing. So it's not like a big building. There's probably just a handful of units. And you can only access the apartments from the back of the building in an alleyway. So about halfway to the alleyway, she realized a man was following her. So she quickly changed course and instead walked around to the front of the building, picking up her pace to try to reach a police call box. 
Within seconds, the man has caught up and he stabs her in the back. She screams at the top of her lungs, but he isn't deterred in the slightest bit. She continues screaming for help and struggles to shield herself from another blow. In the front of her building, so right where they met up, they were standing right in front of a bookstore where her apartment like, sits above the bookstore. And directly across the street is the entrance to a large 10-story apartment building called Mowbray Apartments. Several apartment windows in the Mowbray building lit up with residents stumbling out of their bed to see what the commotion was outside. A man on the seventh floor of his building leaned out of his window and yelled, Hey, let that girl alone. This made the attacker run away, leaving Kitty kneeling on the sidewalk. She struggled to get up and slowly stumbled around the corner of the building trying to get to her apartment, but she could barely move and she collapsed on the ground. So she slowly crawled to the back of the building. She got to the door that led to her apartment. It's basically just a singular front door that has a lock on it with a big glass window in it. And it opens into just a little like vestibule that like leads to the stairs. Mm -hmm. So when you walk in, it's it's like a little landing that's just big enough for like a person or two. And then it's just stairs. So it's it's very narrow. So she managed to get inside the door and then collapsed at the base of the stairs. She couldn't even get up the steps. She laid there bleeding and crying and yelling for help for several moments. She even started to yell, it's me, it's Kitty, I've been stabbed, so that her neighbors would know who it was. And then the man who attacked her was back with a knife in his hand. Kitty erupted in the loudest screams that she could muster. She's trying to fight him off with all of her strength, but he stabs her several more times, and then he raped her as she laid on the ground bleeding out. He stole $49 from her pocket and took off running. Eventually, police and an ambulance arrived, but the attacker was long gone, and tragically, Kitty was pronounced dead before even making it to the hospital. She had suffered 13 stab wounds and had ultimately died from asphyxiation due to a punctured lung. A few days later, a man named Abe Rosenthal, who was a highly respected New York Times editor, was having lunch with the police commissioner who mentioned how astonishing this recent murder was. And Abe didn't, hadn't even heard of this murder because... It hadn't really been widely reported on, you know, because unfortunately a crime like that, a woman murdered by a man on the sidewalk at 3 a.m., like it's just... It's an everyday occurrence, unfortunately. Honestly, then and now. Like that that's just not headline making news. But the police commissioner told him the thing about this that was so astonishing was the fact that there were over 30 witnesses who watched her murder and did nothing, not even call the cops. So Abe is like, okay, say no more. And he put one of his reporters, uh, Martin Gansberg, on the story. Martin interviewed several neighbors, both in Kitty's small complex and several who lived in the larger Mowbray apartments across the street. To his, the papers, and later the public shock, he calculated that there were a total of 38 witnesses who watched Kitty's murder and did absolutely nothing. The original article is archived on the New York Times website, and after reading through it, I was also totally astonished because the apathy expressed by the neighbors is unreal. 38 eyewitnesses saw this and did nothing. In his article, he asks them all, why didn't you call the police? And many of them expressed a fear to do so. And when asked, what was it you were afraid of? Almost all of them responded with some vague mumbled excuse while others unapologetically shrugged and responded, I don't know. 
His article also shed light on the length of the attack, which makes the lack of action on the witness's part so much worse. Kitty was attacked by this man two different times over the course of approximately 32 minutes. Oh my God. Screaming at the top of her lungs the entire time. And remember, it's like 3 a.m. So everybody is in bed. Everyone is, every building in this area is full full of people. It's not like it's 2 p.m. The witnesses stated that they heard her scream, help me. Oh God, I've been stabbed. Save me. God, please help me. I've been stabbed. I'm dying. It's me. It's Kitty. Please save me. Please somebody help me. But no one came to her aid. Police reported receiving their first and only phone call alerting them of this incident at approximately 3.50 a.m. And officers arrived on the scene exactly two minutes later at 3.52 a.m. That one neighbor yelling proved that the attacker would run off if he thought someone was coming. So why didn't anyone even try to save her life? Carl Ross, a man who lived across the hall from Kitty, told police that he heard the screams and he came out of his apartment and stood at the top of the stairs. He saw Kitty collapsed in the entrance to the stairwell, covered in blood, crying and screaming for help as she attempted to fight off a man who was repeatedly stabbing her. The attacker looked up to the top of the stairs. They locked eyes for a second. But when he realized that Carl wasn't going to intervene, he proceeded to rape Kitty. Carl promptly turned on his heel, went inside his apartment, and closed the door. He called his girlfriend and asked her what he should do, and she told him, don't get involved. So he didn't. And I want to clarify also, Carl knew exactly who Kitty was. Like, this was a very small complex. Mm -hmm. He definitely knew that was his neighbor. Not that it would be an excuse if it was a stranger, but just... He knew knew her. It's worth noting that he knew who she was, and he knew exactly what was happening. In fact, Kitty had actually adopted a dog from Carl's pet store recently. So they knew it wasn't just like he kind of knew her face. Like they definitely have had interactions in a relationship of some sort of some kind. Yeah. So Carl told the cops once things quieted down in the stairwell, he crawled out of his window, skipped across the building's roof and knocked on his neighbor's window, a 70 year old woman who lived alone. And she called the police for him. Because he was just too scared. Yeah. This is the person who made the 3.50 a.m. call that the police logged was this uh, 70-year-old woman. When police arrived, they found that Carl, the 70-year-old woman, and another female neighbor who was not named in the article were the only people to come out of their homes. No one else came forward, so every person interviewed by police did so out of obligation when the cops knocked on their doors a few hours later. In the New York Times article, the police expressed shock at how many people admitted to witnessing this crime but didn't call for help. Detectives said that, you know, they understood someone's fear or hesitancy to get physically involved, but why would you fear dialing the police from the safety of your own home? Just you cowards. Know? The apathy expressed by the various neighbors that Martin Gansberg interviewed was so chilling. A little old lady said that she heard screams, so she got out of bed and she saw a man attacking a woman who was kneeling on the sidewalk screaming, help me, help me, save me, save me. And the reporter asks her, did that shock you or frighten you? And without emotion or hesitation, she responds, no. One woman said that she looked outside and thought it was a couple fighting, so she wrote it off and she went back to bed. A married couple looked out their window and said that they couldn't really see what was happening because it was dark out. So they turned their bedroom lights off and then they could see better. 
and then they decided they were too afraid to call the police. One woman said that she knew exactly what was happening, but she didn't want her husband to get involved. Another couple said that they heard the screams, watched the entire attack, but did nothing. Another man looked out, saw the attack, but it was early in the morning and he was tired. So he went back to bed. Some people are just different. And and I say that in the meanest, most awful way. Some people are just, I don't relate to these humans Mm -hmm. at all. A man named Joseph Fink, who worked as the elevator operator in the Mowbray Apartments across the street, had actually been in the lobby at the time of the attack. His seat was in clear, direct view of the precise spot that Kitty was first stabbed. He heard her screaming, help me, help me, I'm being stabbed. He watched the entire first attack start to finish. He knew exactly what was happening. He considered going down to his apartment to get his baseball bat, but his shift was ending. He was tired, so he got in the elevator, rode it down to his apartment, and put himself to bed. And he thought, you know what, why not let a girl get murdered? I'm tired. Yep. A woman named Irene Frost on the second floor of the Mowbray Apartments remembered waking up to the sounds of a woman screaming outside. So she looked out her window and she saw a man and a woman standing in front of the bookstore across the street, but it looked like they were just talking. So she went back to bed. Then Irene heard the woman on the street scream, help me, God, I've been stabbed. Please help me, God. Irene went back to the window in time to see the man running away and the woman fall on her knees. But Irene did nothing after this. A man named Robert Moser on the seventh floor of the Mowbray Apartments remembered hearing screaming. He looked out of his window and saw a woman kneeled over on the sidewalk across the street and a man leaning over her. Robert stuck his head out of the window and yelled, hey, let that girl alone. So that's who he was. Robert said, quote, he ran like a scared rabbit. I never saw anybody take off as quick. He watched the woman struggle to get to her feet and stumble away. And then Robert did nothing after this. A young French woman named Andre Peak was on the fourth floor of the Mowbray Apartments. She was an airline stewardess who, like Kitty, was just returning home from work when she suddenly heard her neighbor yelling something out of his window. She looked outside and saw a woman kneeling on the sidewalk and a man quickly running away. She could hear the woman sobbing and yelling for help. Andre watched the woman struggle to stand and then slowly stumble away around the corner of the building and out of sight. But she was just frozen in place, staring at the spot that the woman had been kneeling, when suddenly she sees that the attacker reappears in a different hat. She watched him casually walk around, although he was obviously looking for the injured woman, but he was like trying to be casual about it. She watched him turn the corner where the hurt woman had gone, and a few seconds later, she hears an eruption of blood-curdling screams begging for help. Andre insists that she called the police immediately, but when the officers made fun of her accent and claimed to not understand her, she hung up on them. And then she did nothing after this. Um, but real quick, because I feel like I'm going to physically explode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's not ethical to like wish you know violence upon anyone, but when <laughs> you are in a position where you're watching a woman get murdered and think to yourself, you know what, I'm tired, better not get involved. I'd rather just put myself to sleep. Yeah. I think that you should be in that position screaming for help and thinking to yourself, why is no one helping me? That like utter, I, I can't even imagine how alone and and frightened she is knowing that she is so exposed to so many windows. Yeah. And I can't help but think, did she look up and see the outline of different heads yeah. filling the window panes yeah. as Lights she's dying? going on, curtains going up, like... Did, what did she see? I That has to be like some sort of offense. Like, can you charge those people with crimes? Because th- you could deem that n- negligence or 
I don't know what you could title that, but that that's punishable. Yeah. So this was in 1964, and so the the reporter Martin Gansberg in his article asked the police department if any of the witnesses could be held legally responsible for their lack of action. Mm -hmm. And at that time, a spokesperson for the police department's legal bureau said, quote, there is no legal responsibility with few exceptions for any citizen to report a crime. And then it was explained that at least at that time, New York law states, if you witness a suspicious or violent death, you're legally obligated to report it to the medical examiner. So I guess the argument is that no one, quote, saw Kitty die because technically she was pronounced dead by paramedics within the confines of an ambulance. So there was no legal action to take against anyone who heard or saw the attack. So you can witness an assault and get away with not calling, but at you least can't witness then. an actual death at, back least then. At, at that time. Okay. Within the first few hours of the investigation, police had pieced together exactly what happened down to the precise length of time that the attack spanned, which was 32 minutes. Which, that just feels like an, it's a lifetime. It, it feels like a lifetime, especially when she's screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and the police even had a solid description of the suspect. And less than a week after her murder, police even find and arrest her killer all based off of the overwhelming amount of information that all of the witnesses provided. I mean, it's it's one thing if 38 people heard screams, looked out their window, but saw no one, mm -hmm. you know, because she's actually around the corner or something. I, how could the police solve anything with that information? I totally would understand not being able to do anything with it. But instead, this murder was solved in six days because the authorities had a plethora of precise, unanimous accounts of the exact same crime. It's like having security camera footage. Exactly. It gives you every angle. I, I, totally. That's exactly what it, would, what it would be like. So her killer was a man named Winston Mosley. He was a 29-year-old. He had a wife and two sons. They lived in Brooklyn, and Mosley had a very good-paying job. And he had an IQ of 135. Which is above average. Yeah. From people who knew him, he was described as meek, very quiet and reserved, very soft-spoken. He had an ant farm that he was very proud of. Red flag. But, well, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but he was also just, he was very physically frail looking. Like he was very tall and lanky and just didn't look like someone who could attack another person. Like kind of sickly? And on it, Like sort of. Like yeah. the, the pictures that I see, I'm like... You don't spindly. look like, like it looks like anyone could take you. But like, like you, wiry strength is something else though. Like I know a, a few men that like they look like they have no definition, yeah. but they're the strongest people I know. Yeah, that's kind of what it, what it was. Um, but after he was arrested, he confessed to killing Kitty. And he was so blunt with police that detectives walked away from their interview labeling him one of the scariest, most bloodthirsty, manipulative killers that they had ever met. He told detectives that on March 13th, he was in the mood to find a woman to rape, rob, and kill. He preferred targeting women because he claims that they didn't fight back as much. He left his sleeping wife in the middle of the night and set out driving around town hunting for an unaccompanied woman. He spotted Kitty in her car, stopped at a red light, and he followed her. He watched her park in the train station parking lot, and he got out of his car, held his knife down by his side, and started walking towards her. He said he didn't remember what he thought during the attack. He just remembers swinging the knife. He says that he knew people were watching, but he didn't care. He later said, quote, it really doesn't take a lot to kill a person, I guess. He said, had anyone acted like they were going to intervene, he would have taken off. 
In fact, that's why he ran away after that one neighbor yelled down to him. And so he said that after the guy yelled, he ran away, he hid, and he waited to see if anyone was going to come outside or if sirens were going to approach. She could have easily lived. Easily. But when he realized that no one was coming, he set out searching for her to finish what he'd started because at that point he knew no one was going to intervene. Oh my God. I would be like, I'm sorry, but like if I were her family member, I would be pulling a taken. Mosley said when he found her in the stairwell and resumed his attack, he stopped when he saw Carl Ross come out. And he was just about to run away when he realized Carl wasn't even going to intervene. And he was actually in the process of turning around and going back inside. So Mosley continued. (laughs) After he drove away from the crime scene, he pulled up behind a car where the driver had fallen asleep at a red light. So Mosley got out and gently tapped on the window, waking the driver and sending him on his way. When asked why he didn't kill that driver, he said, quote, I did not feel that I wanted to kill that man in particular. Five days later, Mosley was arrested for breaking into a home and stealing the TV. And get this, a neighbor saw the whole thing and he intervened. He chased Mosley down tackled him and held him in place until police got there. God forbid you take a TV. After Mosley confessed to killing Kitty, he also confessed to another crime that police didn't even realize had been a murder. Mosley told detectives about another time where he woke up in the middle of the night with this same urge to rape, rob, and kill an unaccompanied woman. So around midnight, after prowling for a while, he found a 24-year-old woman named Annie Mae Johnson exiting her car and walking towards her front door. Mosley ambushed her, shooting her in the stomach four times. Then he dragged her inside and raped her while her family members slept upstairs unaware. When he was about to leave, he realized that she was still breathing. So he gathered newspapers and scrunched them up and placed them around her body and lit the house on fire. And his plan worked. Her death was considered a result of the fire. Two weeks after this, he killed Kitty. After this confession and exhuming her body, police confirmed that Annie Mae Johnson had actually had four bullet wounds in her abdomen, but for some reason, Mosley was never charged with this crime. However, for the murder of Kitty Genovese, Winston Mosley was found guilty and sentenced to death, and the courtroom erupted in applause after hearing the verdict. But he successfully appealed, and his sentencing was changed to life in prison. So this New York Times article detailing the callous apathy of so many people just rocked the nation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you can't read the article without just being sick to your stomach. It's unbelievable. Every major news outlet took the Times article as gospel and not only repeated, but actually exaggerated some of the details. Between JFK's assassination four months earlier, the Vietnam War, not to mention the ever-present racial injustices, The nation was just in a very raw and vulnerable place at that time. And then the callousness of this report of of the 38 witnesses, it it just really exaggerated this idea that living in an urban environment turned you cold and heartless. And while it is true that New Yorkers mind their own business, this painted a much scarier, ruthless image of life in big cities. And this, the fear from Gansberg's article helped advertisers cater even more so to this like so-called American dream. So you as the consumer, you had two choices. You could buy into the so-called perfect life where there's a husband and a wife and a son and a daughter and a cat and a dog and a white picket fence in the suburbs where it's the norm to pop over to your neighbors to borrow a cup of sugar. 
Or you could live in a cold, dirty, fast-paced city where you run the risk of being brutally murdered at your front door and your neighbors are just going to sit back and watch you. Mm -hmm. Not only did this scare people who lived nowhere near New York, but the residents of Kew Gardens specifically freaked out. It made everyone question, would my neighbors have done something to help if it had been me who was attacked? Years later, during his presidency, uh, Bill Clinton briefly touched on Kitty's story during a speech. And on the topic of the neighbor's apathy reported by Martin Gansberg, the president said, quote, It sent a chilling message suggesting that we were, each of us, not simply endangered, but fundamentally alone. Another thing to come out of this um, as a direct result of Kitty's death and the report of the 38 witnesses watching it unfold a whole new field in psychology emerged to study the concept of Genevieve syndrome, which is now known as bystander effect or bystander apathy. An article written by Kendra Cherry for The Very Well Mind says, quote, the term bystander effect refers to the phenomenon in which the greater the number of people present, the less likely people are to help a person in distress. When an emergency situation occurs, observers are more likely to take action if there are few or no other witnesses. Being part of a large crowd makes it so no one single person has to take responsibility for an action or inaction. And what's further disheartening was that for so many years, the coverage of this crime focused more on the witness behavior, barely mentioning who Kitty was as a person. So Catherine Susan Genovese was born on July 7th, 1935. So she's a cancer. cancer. Everyone called her Kitty. She was the oldest of five kids, and she was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Her friends from high school described her as the ringleader of their group, and being friends with Kitty was a big deal because she was a ton of fun, and everyone gravitated towards her. She was just a very sunny type of person. She was always warm and smiling, always cracking jokes. She was voted class cut up by her peers. She was generous and patient, but mostly she was just like so much fun. Like everyone who talks about her is just how funny she was. Like she was really good at doing impressions. She could just make anyone laugh. Like she was always cracking jokes. She and her friends regularly skipped class to spend the day on the beach (laughs) or they'd go to a park and smoke cigarettes and just talk and laugh and goof around for hours instead of going to school. It's something better to do. (laughs) Yeah. She was a real queen bee with a loyal following because her personality was just like so infectious somehow without trying and skipping class regularly she was still a straight a student and in the documentary i watched every home video shows her laughing and dancing and in the photos they show kitty isn't just posing for a photo but like clearly in the midst of bursting out laughing you know So there's just a vibrancy about her that comes through, even in old videos with no sound or in black and white photos. It's just, you could just tell she was very, very vibrant. Kitty's parents had intended to stay in Brooklyn forever, but in 1954, after her mother witnessed a murder, they wanted to wash their hands of city life. It just felt like too cold a place to raise a family, so they moved to Connecticut. Except Kitty didn't move with them. She was 18 by this time. She had already graduated from high school and she just wanted to stay in the city. It's a very bizarre turn of events when you really think about it. The fact that she wanted to get out of the city because she witnessed a murder. I know. And then her oldest daughter wants to stay and and then then she gets murdered in the city. I know. Um, And the idea of her staying, her parents were none too pleased. (laughs) They were not on board with this at all. But she'd already made her choice and she was an adult. So like, what could they really do? Yeah. Kitty spent the next 10 years building the life that she wanted on her terms. 
She went through a series of secretarial jobs, which she hated with a passion. Her friend circle continued growing. She got a super cute little red Fiat that she and her friends would use to just like zip around the city. She'd spend each weekend in Connecticut visiting her family. And finally, she got a job working as a barmaid at a place called Ev's 11th Hour. Kitty's personality was just like way too vibrant and bustling to be content sitting in a dress at a typewriter all day. Like she, that was, that was not her her thing at all to be seen. But she, she loved the ambiance of the bar. It was so reminiscent of her experience in New York, like smoky and fun. And that feeling of being in an underground world where everyone Mm -hmm. is just sort of accepted as they are. All of that was just very intoxicating to her. And that type of ambiance, it was just better for her. It worked better for her personality. And with Kitty being that type of person who could make literally anybody laugh, the regulars fell in love with her. Over time, she worked her way up to becoming the manager of the bar, which really suited her well. And working at Ev's inspired her to set a goal for herself. Kitty wanted to open her own place one day. She dreamed of operating an Italian bar and restaurant that served good food, good drinks, and accepted all walks of life through its doors. And she was saving for this, and she was making so much money she was making 750 dollars a month which back then was like 6500 dollars. oh my gosh i know Go so girl. she's making bank and like yeah. is actually going to be able to open this place because she's making so much yeah. money and saving it all an attainable dream so she seems to be thriving by all means her friends are great her job is great and her love life is great too in March of 1963, Kitty was at an underground lesbian bar in Greenwich Village where she met a pretty blonde girl named Marianne Zolanko. They spent all night talking, slow dancing in the crowded room, and Marianne remembers Kitty making her laugh the entire time. And from that day on, they were just completely inseparable. They found a little apartment above a bookstore in the Kew Gardens area of Queens, and their lives just kind of meshed perfectly. They spent their time with friends who accepted them. They frequented the coffee shop nearby. They loved seeing up-and-coming musicians perform in quaint little dive bars. They spent their weekends at the beach or visiting Kitty's family in Connecticut. They got a dog together that they named Andrew. (laughs) I love human names for pets. I know, me too. (laughs) The girls worked really hard to make their little apartment a cozy home, and they were very happy. Marianne said that she fell so deeply in love with Kitty because it was just impossible not to. Kitty was the best person that she had ever met. The biggest points of conflict in their relationship stemmed from being closeted. Um, You know, in their trusted group of friends in the city, they were accepted. But even then, being gay anywhere in the 1960s was kind of rough, even in New York, because this was all pre-Stonewall. So Kitty's family didn't even know that she was a lesbian. They thought Kitty and Marianne were roommates, and this caused a lot of arguments between the couple. Even though they were in love and in a committed relationship, Kitty really struggled with her identity. Even in photos of her when she's visiting with her family, she's wearing very, like, um, cute, fashionable 1950s dresses, and she looks very prim and proper almost. But then in photos of her in her life in New York, her fashion's very, very different. It's edgier. Yeah, it's much more comfortable and casual. Mm -hmm. Like she's wearing boots and oversized flannels and jeans with like rolled up ankles. Oh, cute. Like, and I'm not saying that just because she's a lesbian, she has to wear flannel or something. Like she can, she very well could have loved both styles, which would be awesome. But it just, it just sort of looks like, oh yeah, there's evidence that she had two Different identities. Yeah, Yeah. And that, that she struggled with that. Her family has since learned of her sexuality. And in this day and age, I mean, I know that it can still be so difficult to come out, 
But especially back then, I mean, it's like the early 1960s and this girl came from a very Catholic, old school Italian-American family who raised her in an old school, like Irish Italian immigrant neighborhood in New York. And like, it's just no wonder she was closeted. So the family didn't know that she was a lesbian until after her passing? Until after, okay. yeah. But Marianne believes that if only she'd been given more time, she would have become more comfortable and eventually come out to her family. Yeah. It was just kind of new in her her life. And How old was she again when she passed? 28. I mean, that's relatively young, you know? Yeah, totally. I'm just trying to figure it out. Yeah. So aside from keeping her love life a secret from her family, Kitty's life in New York seems like a very fulfilling one. In addition to their friends, Kitty's coworkers and the regulars all you know at the bar, they all knew she was a dating a woman and they accepted it without hesitation. Marianne and Kitty had exactly one year together. From the night that they met to the night that Kitty died, it was one year to the day. Their one year anniversary. Yeah. Oh my, where was Marianne? The night that she passed. Well, technically, um, she died on March 13th, okay. but it was 3 a.m. of oh. March 13th. So their anniversary was just starting yeah. that day. So it's not that they weren't together on no, their I anniversary. Understand. I was just wondering if she was in the apartment. On March 12th, Marianne said that she had gone bowling with friends. She got home around 1130 and was so exhausted that she went to bed right away. The next thing that she remembers, the police were banging on her door early in the morning of the 13th telling her that her roommate, Kitty, had died and they needed Marianne to go to the morgue and identify her body. Can you even imagine hearing your partner's past and they like even just refer, I mean, they don't know know. as a roommate, it would be awful. Marianne had slept through the entire attack. She has no memory of hearing any noises outside. After identifying Kitty, she sat down on a bench outside of the room and the police officer told her, oh, we can take you home now. And she said instinctually, she pointed towards Kitty and said, oh, no, I'll wait for her. And then, like, realized what she had said. Just, like, those habits of just, like, oh, no, I'm not leaving. Or it's like, that is my home. Yeah. After she got home that morning, she was so devastated that she started drinking that morning. Yeah, I don't blame her. And for the next six months, that's all she did. Yeah. But eventually she was, like this can't be my life anymore and she worked really hard to pull herself together she went back to school she got a new job and a new apartment and she did her best to move on but to this day she can recall the details of kitty's face her laugh and the special moments that they shared like it was yesterday she put her life back together but the pain of losing kitty is something that she still carries and as for kitty's family the loss was too tremendous for words Mm -hmm. i mean it's just tremendous is putting it lightly kitty's younger brother frank said that he remembers waking up early in the morning to someone ringing the doorbell he could hear his parents going to the door some mumbled exchange and then the most ear splitting agonizing screams that just froze him in place i mean her death was tragic for so many reasons but reading in the newspapers about her neighbors watching it and doing nothing, allowing their firstborn child to die cold and alone on the floor. It it just made an unbearable pain so much worse. And that ultimately broke her parents. I just like that whole added layer would make the, the healing process a million times worse. Thinking about the fact that this woman is by herself trying to get to the four walls that make her safe. Yeah. Yet people are watching from their four walls. And doing nothing. I think that aspect makes it impossible to move past it. Like, because it's one thing to grieve someone who 
dies from cancer, dies from old age, or dies in a car accident, or horribly by murder. Mm -hmm. All of that is so horrible. All of that is so devastating. It's so traumatic. But to hear that someone was yelling for help and then just and so preventable, preventable in the preventable, sorry, in the way that there's 38 human beings. Yeah. There's 38 different chances for that person to intervene. Mm -hmm. It's it. I wouldn't be if, if, if I yeah. heard that I couldn't move on it from anyone's death. Because like I said, it's, taken style yeah. on all of those people. <laughs> I am not even kidding. I would lose it. In the months after her death, Kitty's mother was so fragile that everyone came together to shield her from the relentless media hounding that became the norm after that New York Times article had come out. Kitty's family couldn't even think about her without imagining her last moments. And eventually, as a way to cope and carry on, they stopped talking about her. They couldn't celebrate her life, her birthdays. Her violent and callous murder overshadowed every memory that they had had with her when she was alive. So the Genovese family went several decades without knowing very much about her murder at all. Mm -hmm. First, it was because the police couldn't provide much given that it was an open inv investigation. But then once her killer was caught, they had to also withhold a bunch of information because it was all going to be used as evidence in the trial. But I think that Kitty's parents probably would have rejected the opportunity to hear any details no matter what. So the bits and the pieces that her siblings learned came from, you know, sneaking a newspaper at a friend's house or maybe catching a few minutes of a report on the radio. Ultimately, the kids, they just rallied around their parents and they did whatever they could to help them cope, which meant not talking about Kitty or her death yeah. ever. But like everybody else, they did read Martin Gansberg's initial um, New York Times article, and they took it as gospel, just like everybody else. So essentially, they spent decades thinking Kitty was just attacked on her way home and died from her injuries, and that neighbors saw but ignored her. That That's roughly all that they knew. Okay. Kitty had had four siblings, but she'd had a particularly close bond to her brother, William, who uh, goes by Bill. He's the one who did the documentary investigating the details around her death. Bill was 16 when Kitty died. Learning that so many people watched his sister die and did nothing impacted Bill in a way that changed his life forever, and it essentially influenced every major decision that he made going forward. For example, two years after her death, Bill turned 18, and the Vietnam War was in full swing, and his peers were all doing whatever they could to get out of serving, and that cut him so deep. He viewed them as apathetic bystanders, just like the people in Kitty's neighborhood. So he enlisted in the Marines. He said he was young and maybe a little bit naive. He thought he'd be fine and that he was taking a moral stand, you know, fighting this idea of becoming an apathetic bystander. And his decision had nothing to do with like his political beliefs or opinion of the war. It was solely based on Helping. the 38 people who stood back and watched Kitty die. In July of 1967, during patrol near an enemy village, Bill was severely injured. And he survived, but he ended up needing both of his legs amputated. So he has spent essentially his whole adult life in a wheelchair. He said that day was the closest that he's ever come to experiencing what his sister must have experienced. Laying there terrified and bleeding, knowing your life depends on someone else coming to your rescue. Mm -hmm. The difference being someone did rescue him. Mm -hmm. Because the Genovese siblings took their parents' lead and didn't talk about her, this ended up becoming a long-term habit long after Kitty's parents had passed away. 
So Bill and his siblings, they all have children who are all now adults. But those kids, they say that growing up, it was as if Kitty had been erased from the family tree decades before any of them were born. Mm -hmm. One of Bill's daughters said that once in high school, she was reading about Kitty's murder in a textbook and then realized halfway through that she was actually reading about her own aunt. Oh my gosh. She said, in all honesty, what she knows of Kitty is just what she's read on Wikipedia. She knows how she died, but she couldn't tell you a single personal detail about her. Kitty to her is essentially just a picture in a magazine. So in 2004, to mark the 40th anniversary of Kitty's murder, the New York Times published an article that focused on the inaccuracies of Martin Gansberg's original 1964 report and the ripple effect that it had on society. For decades, Bill avoided learning any details about the night his sister died because it was just way too painful. But eventually, his imagination became worse than just knowing the truth. So between the new 2004 Times article and some amateur internet sleuthing that he did, Bill began questioning whether or not his life decisions, one of which resulted in him becoming wheelchair-bound for the rest of his life, was all based on a false report. So he partnered with a director named James Solomon for a documentary that follows Bill's journey to get to the truth, to find answers to questions that in the past he'd been too afraid to ask, like, did he lose his legs in Vietnam for nothing? Okay, so remembering that Bill made decisions about his life based on the belief that the entirety of Gansberg's story was factual, it makes it very, very heartbreaking to learn throughout filming of the documentary that the majority of it was not factual at all. Many of the people involved in the original story, whether they be ear or eyewitnesses, detectives or reporters, most of them have long since passed away, but Bill found a few who were still alive and willing to talk with him and share with him what they had experienced that night. So he's basically just trying to debunk the, the theory of 38 people. So now I'm about to list some of the things that he discovered. Okay. So the first thing is that the New York Times reported that there were 38 eyewitnesses, but Bill discovers not only was the number 38 highly exaggerated, but only a handful of people who heard the screams actually saw anything outside. That means there were more ear witnesses than there were eyewitnesses. The claim that everyone watched for more than half an hour was also untrue because several people did see a man and a woman on the sidewalk, but once Kitty made her way to the back of the building, she was out of sight completely f from everybody, and then it was almost 20 minutes before Mosley returned, so a lot of people had just assumed she had gotten somewhere safe, that attacker had taken off, mm -hmm. and they went back to bed. Another thing was... Almost all of the witnesses did not realize a murder was taking place or any crime for that matter. They thought it was just a couple that was arguing on the side of the road. Another issue is that major media outlets aided in painting New York City as a cold and murderous place. But Kitty didn't even live in Manhattan. She lived in Queens and her neighborhood, Kew Gardens, was known for being very safe and clean and quiet at that time. Bill tracks down a woman named Lynn, who was 19 and living with her parents in Mowbray Apartments when Kitty died. She told Bill that she had woken up from a scream coming from outside, but when she got to the window, she didn't see anyone on the sidewalk, so she just went back to bed. The next morning, she learned what really happened when police knocked on her door, so she told them what she had heard, and that was that. Her parents never woke up, so they weren't even interviewed by police. 
However, reports from 1964 show that Lynn and her mother both told police that they heard the screams, looked outside, and saw a woman yelling, George, he's done it to me. George, he's done it to me. Please help me. And then hearing this, like present day, Lynn is floored. She's like, I never said that to anyone. Mm -hmm. My mom never even woke up. So she wasn't even interviewed by police. Wow. And no one knows who George is. Putting words in people's mouths. Yeah, that that name means nothing to anybody, including Bill, Kitty's brother. Police logs show that only one phone call was made alerting them of Kitty's attack, which was the old lady in her building that Carl, the guy Mm -hmm. who watched, you know, he had asked her to call. So that was at 3.50 a.m. But Bill finds another woman who was living in Mowbray Apartments named Hattie. She tells him that she woke up hearing a woman screaming. She went to her window and she saw a woman kneeling on the sidewalk yelling for help and then get up and stumble around the corner out of sight. Hattie never saw a man at any point, so she didn't see that part. Okay. She immediately called the police, but when she started to explain why she was calling, the officer interrupted her and said, we've already gotten many calls about this and hung up on her. She said that she knows for a fact that several of her neighbors in the building also had called the police that night. And she admitted that like, yes, New Yorkers are notorious for keeping to themselves. But at that time in that neighborhood, there were many people who never hesitated to call the police. She said, all of the reporters who came sniffing around Mowbray Apartments were very persistent about pushing the story that everyone saw or heard, but did nothing. So then when Gansberg's piece came out, Hattie and all of the other neighbors that she knew for certain had called the police. They were all omitted from the from the article and they were pissed because they're like, you're painting this entire place as being so cold. But we did call the police. You're also messing with people's lives because like I'm sitting on this couch with so much rage as like one of the most harmless human beings I know. And I'm about to lose my crap on these people. So like assume there's somebody that is actually familial ties. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? You got a a first name and a last name. You know what floor they live on? Yeah. Done. Done. Yeah. It's awful. So because of uh, the layout of the apartments, because there were two separate attacks, no one person could have possibly seen the entire sequence of events. So just the the opening line of of Gansberg's article of like 38 eyewitnesses watched her get murdered, it wasn't even physically possible. Mm -hmm. No one person saw the entire thing. The only two real witnesses who definitively knew what was happening but turned their backs were Joseph Fink, the elevator operator in the building across the street, who saw the first attack, and Carl Ross, Kitty's neighbor, who saw the second attack. Mm -hmm. Really, those are the only two who know for certain, start to finish, what What was was happening. happening. The reports that Kitty was screaming nonstop for half an hour likely aren't true either. First of all, not a single witness claimed that. And second, Kitty's official cause of death was asphyxiation due to a punctured lung, And so that means at some point during the final attack, her lungs began to fill with blood, which would have prevented her from making a sound. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing about this is that as he's uncovering all of these little inaccuracies, I'm like, how the hell did no one else at the time pick up on this stuff? But it turns out that several police officers, detectives, and reporters from much smaller news outlets knew right away that Gansberg's report was false. But Abe Rosenthal, the editor was highly respected by his peers and the New York Times, you know, then and now has more clout than most news organizations. So no one challenged the Times report. 
even its biggest competitors, people who had the ability, like other papers who had the means to challenge that and do their own research and do their own coverage of it, they didn't. One reporter named Daniel Meenan, who worked for a much smaller news outlet, read Gansberg's article and then conducted his own research, which is what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He said Gansberg's article, like it just didn't sit right with him. It didn't make sense to him when he read it. And so he was inspired to just go look into it himself. Mm After interviewing police and several of the same people from the neighborhood, he confirmed that Gansberg had lied, exaggerated, and omitted so many crucial details in his report. And when Gansberg was asked, why didn't you include in your story the fact that many of the witnesses did not believe a murder was taking place, Gansberg responded, because it would have ruined the story. That's all that matters, you know? The most devastating bittersweet discovery that Bill made through his research was that Kitty wasn't actually alone when she died. Martin Gansberg had reported that the only three neighbors to come outside the night of Kitty's death were Carl Ross, the 70-year-old woman who had called the police for Carl, and a third unnamed woman who everyone accepted would just remain a mystery forever and assumed that she also must not have played much of a role that night Mm -hmm. if she didn't even get her name in the article. Mm -hmm. But it turns out the unnamed woman wasn't a mystery at all, and she actually cradled Kitty as she took her last breaths. Martin Gansberg intentionally omitted this from his story. Back in 1964, Kitty's family couldn't stomach going to the trial because it was too raw, too painful. All the information they had, they learned from the papers. So fast forward to when Bill is middle-aged and working on this documentary, and he starts studying the trial's transcripts, He's stunned by the testimony of Kitty's neighbor, a woman named Sophia Farrar. In 1964, Sophia was about Kitty's age. She was married with a young son named Michael, and they lived a few doors down from Kitty and Marianne. Michael remembers most mornings before school, Sophia and Kitty sitting at the table eating toast and gossiping over coffee. Mm-hmm. Just like you and I. I know. <laughs> sometimes Kitty helped take care of him and his sister, and sometimes Sophia would watch Kitty's dog for her. The women met as neighbors but became genuine friends who got together all the time and talked and, you know, they Mm -hmm. were just very genuine friends. Early in the morning on March 13th, Michael said he was woken from a deep sleep by the loudest, most guttural scream he had ever heard. He jumped out of bed and ran to his parents who were looking out the window, but they didn't see anyone, so they all went back to bed. Mm -hmm. 20 minutes later, the phone rings. Michael gets out of bed in time to see his mother hang up the phone and turn to his dad and say, oh my God, Kitty's bleeding in the hall. Sophia grabbed her coat and ran. Michael's dad was struggling to get dressed and was like, hold on, hold on, wait for me, wait for me. But Sophia was already gone out the door running to her friend. Kitty's clothes had been ripped open. She was covered in blood. And even though Sophia found her alone at the base of the stairs, Kitty was still flailing her arms, trying to fend off her attacker. Sophia could see that Kitty's black leather gloves had had slices all up and down the fingers and palms from trying to defend herself. Sophia slipped and fell in the blood as she ran in, so she laid down on the ground and held Kitty in her arms, rocking, comforting, and whispering reassurances. It's okay, you're not alone, I'm here now. Help is on the way. The more that Sophia whispered help is on the way, the more Kitty calmed down until she was finally still. She tried to speak, but all Sophia could hear was a deep rattling, and then Kitty was gone. 
A few weeks after the murder, Sophia gave an interview to some random reporter. Given the fact that Sophia got a call and then blindly ran out into the dark, not knowing what kind of danger she was running towards and then finding out later just how dangerous it really was because she missed the attacker by mere moments, you know? Mm -hmm. The reporter asks, knowing what you know now, would you run to her again? And without hesitation, she says, yes, of course I would. But when the article came out, Sophia was furious to read that the reporter lied about her response. They stated that she had actually responded with, no, if I could go back, I wouldn't do that again. So from that day forward, Sophia refused to speak about the murder publicly. The only time she did was when she was called to testify. But, you know, remember that Katie's family didn't go to the trial, so they had no idea that Sophia even existed, much less what her existence meant to Katie's final moments. Mm -hmm. Sophia agreed to meet Bill for the documentary, and she, she told him that, as soon as she heard Kitty was hurt, she just instinctively ran to her aid. She didn't need to stop and think. She didn't fear for her own safety. All she knew was that her friend needed help, and so she acted without hesitation. So Daniel Meenan, that one reporter who had confronted Gansberg privately, he chose not to publicly challenge the Times because it would have been like, like an ant taking on a lion. You know, it would have been career suicide, but... Regardless, it is inexcusable that Sophia Farrar's name was not printed in Gansberg's piece. Her name was not only repeatedly listed in police files, but she testified at Mosley's trial. Like her name is as public as can be. Like it's out there. It's easy to find. It's easy to track it down. Her identity and her actions that night were not a mystery. They were buried to support dishonest journalism. Bill said that learning that his sister actually died in the arms of her friend would have brought a lot of comfort to his family back in 1964. It just would have made a world of difference. Yeah. Instead, they believed for decades that she died cold and alone in a stairwell, defiled in her last moments, and slowly choking to death on her own blood while heartless neighbors just watched. All because a reporter took liberties that he thought would sell more papers. Reporting the truth that one woman dropped everything and ran barefoot into the coldest night of the year in just a nightgown and a coat, then laid in the middle of a crime scene, holding and rocking her friend, whispering reassurances in her ear, sort of ruins your story when you're just talking about uh, apathy. Yeah. In 1968, Winston Mosley escaped police custody when he was being transferred to a hospital. He broke into several homes took hostages, and even raped a woman in front of her husband before authorities captured him again and he was returned to prison. He has since claimed to be rehabilitated, but he has been denied parole 18 times. From his jail cell, he got a bachelor's in sociology and even wrote an essay in 1977 that was published in the New York Times of all places. In the essay, he touches on the positives in society that have come from Kitty's murder and claim that he is a victim too. Oh, he acknowledges that society and its citizens had a, had a responsibility to help Kitty that night, but they also have a responsibility to help him at that time. Borderline personality is a real bitch, isn't it? Yeah. He claimed that the Winston Mosley who killed Kitty has long since died and he is now a new man. But in the documentary, Bill attempts to meet Mosley face to face for the first time, but Mosley refuses to meet him. However, his son agreed to meet with Bill. Stephen Mosley was seven years old when his father went to prison. He's grown up to become a reverend and maintains contact with his dad. 
So in the documentary, the discomfort Stephen feels is palpable. Like even through a screen, I mean, I could feel yeah. it was it, it palpable is just the only way to describe yeah. it. it. So during their meeting, Bill gently says, I don't hold the son responsible for the father's deeds because it's definitely feels like Stephen thinks that that's what Bill is doing. Mm-hmm. Like that he, he feels that way towards him, not just his Seven dad. years old. Right, exactly. But he goes on to tell Bill that his father has painted a very different picture of the night that Kitty died. Stephen grew up believing that his father was out one night during a time when racial tension in New York was very high. Winston was feeling pent up. He was minding his own business and Kitty attacked him with racial slurs. So he snapped and killed her. So he's basically painting it as a one crime of passion that like robbed him of his life. Yeah. And Bill gently disputes this and asks... Are you aware that your father raped and murdered an African-American woman only two weeks before he killed my sister? And that was the first that Stephen had heard of this. And he just says, maybe he did do that. I don't know because we've never talked about it. He then somewhat nervously admits that since 1964, the Mosley family has believed that Winston murdered a member of the infamous Genovese crime family of the New York mafia. So in all honesty... When he agreed to meet Bill, Stephen thought he was agreeing to meet a bombster. And his family was like, you can't meet with this guy. You might not come back. And Stephen told them, I'm not afraid to die if it's my time. Which explains so much of his discomfort in the meeting. He's like, you're going to get me at any point. Yeah, but the two Genovese families are not related. Nevertheless, Stephen's brief appearance in the documentary was an important part, in my opinion, because he said, you know, the the Genovese family experienced a painful loss, but so did the Mosley family. And I think it's really easy in stories like this to only focus on the murdered victim and their loved ones. But sometimes, like in this story, the murderer destroyed two families simultaneously. Winston's young sons grew up being bullied and ridiculed and judged for the monstrous acts that their father committed when they were too young to even understand what he had done, which I think is just as heartbreaking as the pain that he also caused Kitty's family, you know? Stephen said that like Bill, Kitty's murder influenced his path in life. He grew up wanting to be the good guy who did good things and tries to fix the bad in the world. In 2016, Winston Mosley died in prison at the age of 81. It's been 58 years since Kitty was murdered, and since then, the 911 operating system was implemented in the U.S., Good Samaritan laws have passed, neighborhood watch groups have become the norm, and an entire field in the world of psychology emerged as a direct result from her murder. For decades, Kitty's name has been infamous because, you know, if you know her name, it's likely you associate it with callous bystander apathy. But a journalist named Michael Daly said, quote, If Kitty Genovese is a name that immediately summons something to people's minds, then that thing that gets summoned should be the truth. Marianne, Kitty's girlfriend, now lives in Vermont and says that she doesn't consider herself as healed from this tragedy because she doesn't know what that looks like. She doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't know if she ever will be. But the biggest lesson that she learned from Kitty's death is that we all have to love each other in this world. Bill says that he and his siblings grieved her loss privately back in 1964, and their parents had been so devastated by her death that everyone avoided talking about it at home. That was the only way that their parents could try to survive. But even then, like, how do they, how could parents really recover from this? 
Kitty's mother had a stroke a year after the murder, and Kitty's father died only a few years later when he was still in his 50s. But nowadays, things are different. They talk about Kitty. They share stories. She has a great niece that was named after her. And whenever the Genovese family gets together for holidays and celebrations, they all raise a glass and toast to Kitty's memory. And that is the story of Kitty Genovese. One, devastating. But two, I'm so happy that you told that story because I have gone my whole life thinking that it was very much the way that the New York Times reporters stated that things were. Everyone Everyone did, thought yeah. that. So I think that that I, I like that about a few of your stories. I feel like you like even the Stockholm syndrome. I know I, this was coincidental. I didn't know that yeah, it was like it's a groundbreaking. Yeah, I didn't know I was such a groundbreaking. You're changing podcaster. true crime forever. <laughs> you and by you only re- by reading other people's work. Well, I'm not doing it. So I'm just going along, putting along, thinking of things that I, you know, I'm just stubbornly thought. I don't know. I can't even sure. speak. Just, <laughs> just puttering over here. There's like a element of that that reminds me a little bit of, I mean, you obviously know because I was like devastated that one day that I was leaving that shoot. Yeah, I remember that story. I was in downtown LA and I was leaving a photo shoot, really glammed up and I was walking out the front door and everyone that lives in downtown LA or has been to LA knows that it is a... It's it, very dangerous. It used to be just kind of gross and kind of just like smell like mm-hmm. pee. And now it's just like incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And I don't like to not go places because it's has a lot of homeless people or this or that, because I feel like that just makes sure. me a privileged, a privileged asshole. Yeah. Yeah. But it, when it comes to your safety and this was the first time in my mind that I'm like, I am never going back here unless I literally have a male escort and I hate living my life like that. But, um, you mean like a sex worker? A male escort. <laughs> <laughs> no, kind of like I'm like Paris Hilton and I'm like, can't even get a smoothie without someone, you know, guiding me sure. and protecting me. Sure. So anyways, so you I walk want out. a security guard. <laughs> yeah, if I'm going to walk anywhere after this, heck yeah. Yeah. So I walk out the front door and I'm jumping to my own conclusions, but based off of what I was seeing, I assume it was a man who had a drug overdose and he passed away just because he was accompanied by another man that was very clearly a drug addict. He was losing his mind he was devastated he was screaming at the top of his lungs his i'm assuming his friend was being loaded into the back of an ambulance and there was no sense of urgency it was clear that he had passed okay and i'm just standing there kind of watching this happen and there's i would say like six or eight cops that are surrounding like you know is it emt like ambulance drivers yeah so there was a combination of obviously drivers standing around talking cops talking no sense of urgency which really bothered me because a human just passed away sure <laughs> but i guess there's not much they can do and yeah. that's you know la you know the homeless situation for you but basically they're loading them up they turn around and they're checking me out the cops the cops very evidently i mean i'm glammed up and you know just came from a shoot they can see that the man who was freaking out had locked in on me Oh. He had very clearly made eye contact with me in my head. I was like, it was just a, this weird moment of recognition across the street. And I thought to myself, I, I better go. <laughs> I better yeah. get going. Yeah. But I'm not exactly running because there's a million well, cops right daylight. there. Why it was literally you? like 3 p.m., 2 why, p.m. Why would you run? Why am I going to be yeah. running? There's cops there. If anything were to happen, the cops would protect me. Sure. So I thought. Yeah. So I'm getting into the car and I'm texting my then boyfriend at the time saying I'm on my way. And the next thing I know is I, I feel and hear palms slamming onto my car Ugh. and trying to get into my back seat. Oh my gosh. And I've, thank goodness it was like this like cold 
just a, it's like adrenaline, a pure adrenaline, yeah. just calmly washed over me. And I clicked the lock button as he was reaching for my handle. Oh, and the timing of it was like, boom, boom. Yeah. So, he would have been in my car a second earlier sort yeah. of thing. And I noticed that, you know, I, I, one of his eyes was half missing, you know, it was bleeding out of the sockets. So he was injured. He, I like I said, if I'm jumping to conclusions, I would assume that he had been on meth and had tried to claw his eye out. Oh. It was kind of that look because there was claw marks around the socket as well. Oh, so he's either him or someone else or some sort of hallucinogen where you know his skin's yeah. crawling. He's trying to remove something, and the other eye looks like there had been some sort of like skin um, decay. It was turning black, like gangrene. Oh. And he was emaciated, and he was terrified, and he was crying profusely out of his one eye and you could he was looking at me like help me yeah and I remember backing out of that parking spot it's like this very tight parking spot and just being like I cannot run over this man's feet like I cannot I can't add injury to this human being mm -hmm. but I also need to get away from this person yeah and I am just I'm at that point I wasn't crying but I'm just shaking and I back out and I'm driving away and he's looking at me like you're not gonna help me yeah. And I thought in that moment, like then I just immediately want to vomit because I'm thinking to myself, these cops are still standing there. I could see them. So they like knew that he followed you. Yes. Like his friend had just died and they're mm -hmm. and they just let him go. They're tending to this and yeah. then he's freaking out and he sees you walk out of a different building and then just yeah. follows and you. And just follows me. And the cops just watch him follow you. I literally just walked down to the end of the block. Yeah. The cops are still in eyesight. My parking lot is in eyesight. I then have to sit at a red light in eyesight of this poor man as well as the cops. Yeah. And then I start, everything just starts flashing for me that it's like, one, this person is obviously in a very terrible, I mean, we're getting into then a totally different topic, but this human being clearly on drugs, clearly in a state that if he is not treated, could easily die from the injuries that is, he has sustained. Yeah. And the cops are doing nothing about it. There is a human being that this person is following. They're doing nothing about it. Yeah. There is no one advocating for anyone. And it was like a very sad, I know that I am of no more importance than this human being that mm -hmm. is taking drugs. Mm -hmm. I know that realistically, but you think that there's a level of protection when you do all of these so-called right things. I'm not taking drugs. I'm not doing, you know, following someone to their car, trying to get into their car and no one was advocating for me and protecting me. And the nerve of the cops to check you out as that you was, walk by. Oh. And then they're like, the entire yeah. thing is in their eye line the, the whole time. Yeah. And then they just don't do anything. That was the part that like, I mean, there's obviously other things that infuriated me, but, if, but mostly broke my heart. But the, the, the audacity of checking me out, talking about me, yeah. leering at me. And then seeing this man follow me and they're like, yeah, well, we've got what we needed from her. We looked at her and now she's gone. And the fact that this guy is clearly in crisis, yeah, it, like in, on so many levels yeah. and they just aren't doing anything. Oh, it was the most guttural screams of just absolute pain. Oh, that's horrible. It was, I, I mean, as soon as I got home, I literally had a drink. I was like, I couldn't. That was the most devastating thing I had ever witnessed. Yeah. And I tried to look up like the crime reports for that area the next day. Mm -hmm. Wasn't even listed. Yeah. And that, you know, that in itself, it's like there's so much. I mean, obviously that's what LA is like these days, but they're not yeah. even bothering putting it online or reporting any of the things that, yeah. you know, 
alter people's lives. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said about a crowd of civilians and how it is more unlikely if you're in a crowd and you see something happening, mm-hmm. you are less likely to do something because you just feel like someone else will. That's the whole point of this bystander apathy is like, sure. it's not that you're apathetic. It's that you think someone else is going to do it. Yeah. That's why like in an emergency, you know, if you, if someone's gotten in a car accident or something, or someone collapses mm-hmm. in the middle of the shopping mall, you like are supposed to make eye contact mm-hmm. with someone standing by and say, you, you call 911. Yeah. You can't just be like, someone call 911 because then Address nobody does. But it's, I can understand why a group of civilians, for sure, like why that would happen. But cops, with a group of cops, you're literally paid to do one thing and that yeah. is to serve and protect. Well, yeah. those are two things, but whatever. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Serving is protecting yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And it reminds me of when another reminds me of, it was on Halloween of 2020 and we were just having dinner outside and Kristen and I saw that there was a man and a, a woman and they're in a physical altercation across the street and he was getting very aggressive with her. Mm-hmm. And she and I are looking around and there are men dining in front of us, next to us, behind us they're just watching in like shock and awe she and i the only two females we had actually a man with us and he didn't do anything chris and i jump up run across the street and we insert ourselves in a situation that was probably i mean it ended up being fine but it was you don't know but how that's never, gonna go yeah you don't know how that's gonna go if a man can publicly hurt a woman yeah why would capable. why wouldn't he hurt the other two who run up and intervene exactly i and, remember One time I was on uh, the train. I was like on a commuter train coming home from school. Mm -hmm. And it's like every true crime book right now. Girl on a train. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Commuting from work. (laughs) Yeah. But I was on the train and it was like 4 p.m. So it's still daytime. And there was this woman who was just a talker. Like she was talking her neighbor's ear off the Mm -hmm. whole train. Like one of those people. And I was Mm -hmm. just like, oh my God, I do this every day. I'm just trying to get home. Seriously, be more self-aware, please. I don't need to talk to anybody. But this woman, she was just like talking, 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 talking the whole time. She just wouldn't stop talking. And then her friend, like her or the woman that she was like talking her ear off, got up and left like on the at the next stop. It's like we were in those four seaters that like face each other. And I'm sitting there just like, I can't make eye contact because she's going to view it as an opening. <laughs> yeah. And we, it was just the two of us sitting in this little four seater. And the train is full of commuters. It's full of business men and women oh, yeah. who are coming home and you know it's it's like the busiest time i i was surprised i even got a seat like it was like that crowded mm-hmm. and this man comes in who is clearly on something and he's like like with every lurch of the train he like dramatically like falls into a woman and he's yeah. like oh oh so so sorry you know like that kind of thing and i'm kind of like watching him and like He's being disruptive enough that some people get up and go to a different cart like all together. And then he realizes that this woman and I are sitting in next to each other in this little empty area. (laughs) So he comes over and he sits down and he leans over and is like, give me a kiss. And he's like, he's either on something or he's drunk. He's as wobbly as possible. Mm. And then the train is making it even worse. And he like lurched for me. And I like started jumping up. And the woman was like, oh, come on, Amy. And she like grabbed my hand and like stood up. And she's like, get your bags. Let's go. I was like, okay. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> you want. Like, I was so. I'm Amy now. <laughs> I was so. St- yeah. My name is. How did you know? Yeah. You know? And then so we like we get off and we just like took off on 
she didn't know that it was my train stop. We just were stopping at a random train station. And so we just get up and leave. And like, she rescued me from this guy who tried to lurch towards me to kiss me. And there are men literally standing right next to me. Yeah. Like we, I had to pass, I get like a bunch of people to move out of my way to get off the train. And I was so grateful for this chatty Kathy who like saved me. Just took initiative. And she was just like, you know, you just need to do this kind of thing. Like you just need to be forceful with men like that. Like you just get up and you walk away. And she was like, I can't believe how many guys were just all standing around watching. They didn't do anything. Even when he was harassing other women before he got to us. I'm not shocked by they that. They weren't doing anything. <laughs> they were just ignoring it and pretending like it wasn't happening. Yeah. And then she like, uh, she's like, sorry, I, I, I know I just forced you to get off on this at this train station where was your stop and I was like oh no this is actually my stop and she was like oh me too <laughs> and I was like oh okay that's cool and that's how Ashley and I met <laughs> <laughs> so funny but then she's like so what's your real name and I was like oh it's Ashley and she was like oh my god and I said Amy it was so close and she was like wouldn't it have been weird if I had gotten it and I was yeah. like yeah it would have almost creepy but you actually be cute Amy thank you I like that name for you thank you I think okay, that's I'll, I'm sorry well Amy and I <laughs> I'll consider changing it yeah, smart but it just goes to show, like, if someone just d- doesn't want to be involved, they're just going to ignore it. It's funny because I've noticed that I'm not going to generalize men, but I kind of am. Um, they side on the or they err on the side of not causing a scene or kind of like getting involved. And it's like yeah. I've heard that from multiple men. That's like it's not not my business. It's not my thing. And it's like. Yeah, it's, but it wasn't her business either, Either just all of a sudden being attacked. Sure. She didn't like sign up and prepare no. for this. Nobody asks to be victimized. No, and they don't want to insert themselves on the off chance that they get hurt. Yeah. That's like that, that one, our guest episode with Ben Chamberlain when yeah. he was talking about how he intervened with that domestic dispute. It just reminded me of what you were saying about exactly. your Halloween dinner. Exactly. He did something about it. Yeah. Good for him. And well. I'll- <laughs> just cut you off well okay bye amy amy we gotta go okay speaking of which let's get let, out of here let's go <laughs> all right well love you love you bye. bye if you enjoy this episode please rate review and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening we owe everything to the many journalists authors filmmakers psychiatrists and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. See you next week.